everyone. I'm Alicia Swamy, and I am here with my co-host, Eric Johnson, and we are Exposing Mold. Today, we have Dr. Rafael D'Angelo from Para Wellness in Colorado. Dr. D'Angelo is a medical doctor specializing in the diagnosis and treatment of parasites. He has over 45 years of experience in medical microbiology and parasitology and conducts research on various aspects of infectious diseases. He is certified in family medicine, integrative medicine, uh, medical microcurrent, clinical aromatherapy, and medical technology. He has also conducted research on the natural treatment of infections with current investigations in parasite eradication. Welcome, Dr. D'Angelo. We're so happy to have you. Well, thank you. It's a privilege to be here with you today. Yeah. So the, the topic of parasites is such a big ordeal. Because in America, it's not really a primary focus or, or a primary idea that a doctor, you know, say your GP, where you can go in and say, hey, I think I might have parasites. People kind of look at you crazy and you can get actually a delusional diagnosis if you focus too much on the possibility of having a parasite. So what's kind of going on in this realm? What are some trends that you're seeing? Well, one of the problems is that uh, we don't, learn about parasites uh, very much in medical school. And then it is not even emphasized during residency and preparation for medical uh, doctoring because, you know, they th we feel like we're going to leave it to the infectious disease docs and we're going to leave it to the GI docs. And uh, if they think there might be a parasite, then let them figure it out. But the, the misconception is that there's not a parasite problem here in the United States. And I talked to my doctor friends about that, and they agree. They say, no, no, there's no parasite problem. We have great public health. We have all kinds of uh, this and that, and uh, we don't have to worry about it. But the fact of the matter is that if you really do good parasite testing, we have a parasite problem here in the country, and i that's one reason why I do what I do. I've got kind of a funny story about that. Uh, 20 years ago, I was calling up doctors asking about parasites. I asked Oliver Leitao and Reno, and um, the doctor said, well, there is no parasite problem. In fact, the local laboratories don't even offer a parasite panel. So I called up the laboratories and asked them why. And they said, oh, yeah, of course, there's a parasite problem. But uh, doctors never order one, so we, we don't carry it. Yeah, that, that's part of the problem. And, and then the other aspect is this. When I was in training, which was my training was initially Air Force for medical technology. And then, uh, then again, uh, went back in after uh, Air Force uh, enlisted tour and went into medicine, became a doctor, uh, we had parasite testing done on all of our GIs and even their, um, you know, their spouses and kids. And often we would find parasites. And this is even stateside, not just overseas. Uh, when I was in Vietnam, uh, as an enlisted medical technologist, uh, we had parasites all, all the time under the microscope. Uh, so it's it's there. Now, I, I have, uh, when I give uh, talks about parasites to groups and doctors, I say, 
that there's this sign on the border of the United States that says no parasites allowed. Uh, we don't realize that there are the same soils, the same water, and to some extent, some of the same insects that carry parasites. And then all of a sudden, we don't have a parasite problem. I think it can go back to a time when the laboratories were, uh, were told by the government that we are not going to pay uh, top dollar for parasite testing. We're going to give you a very small amount. And this happened at a time when I was one of the technologists in, in a civilian laboratory. And they fired a lot of the high-paid technological exp expertise people because they weren't going to be used for parasite testing and looking for parasites. So they replaced them with um, mid-level technicians. And I would say that uh, that pretty much uh, stands today, unless there's a real problem, maybe a pathologist will look at a slide, but that's the exception. Um, when I was practicing family medicine, I would order parasite tests, and I would never get a positive, very, very rarely. And I, and I understand what's going on. Um, there's just inexperience with the looking through the scope because they're not really looking for the kinds of parasites that might really be there. And, and if they do see something, it might be mistaken for some artifact instead of a real parasite. So I never got parasite positive tests when I was in practice, but I knew my patients had them. And it, it, some uh, specialized labs would occasionally come up with a parasite. But when I got out of the, uh, um, when I got out of the military, and then when I got uh, finished uh, train my uh, family practice uh, uh, practice, and went into sort of a retirement, a friend of mine who uh, took care of cancer patients, he was uh, a practitioner. He used alternative methods. And uh, he came to me and he said, you know, I, I have to send stool samples to a hospital in Nigeria to get a good parasite test. And they will find the parasites. And sometimes uh, uh, here in the United States, uh, when I do send one to a, to a state lab, they never find the same parasite at all. And I, I got to thinking, well, what am I going to do in my sort of semi-retirement? I mean, I did this kind of testing uh, in the Air Force and was good at microscope work. So uh, I said, well let, well, let me see if I can set up a little lab and uh, do the test for you. I mean, that's the, to me, that's uh, not an, even an issue. I'd love to do it. I like working with the microscope and med medical microbiology. So he said, okay. And uh, so I started out in 2011 um, with a microscope in, in a little lab in my basement in my home, did all the uh, staining of the slides and collection and what have you, and was finding parasites. And uh, we were taking care of these cancer patients that were having parasite problems. And word of mouth spread from there. 
And now I, I get specimens from people all over the country, sometimes out of country, but that's not very often. Uh, and there's parasites in, in the samples. So that's a little bit about how things got started with me doing parasite testing and uh, what I do today. Wow. Thank you for that. In regards to the cancer patients, um, were they able to resolve their cancer after they treated for parasites? The ones that I could follow closely enough, uh, they got better. See, the problem here is that the the parasite itself rarely, rarely causes a a direct cancer. Uh, They cause inflammation. They tie up immune system stuff. And so that uh, when you get rid of parasites in a cancer patient or even in another patient who has um, various inflammatory conditions, then uh, the immune system can work on taking care of the problem instead of fighting a parasite. So in a sense, um, people get better when they get rid of the parasites, regardless of what their condition is. Wow, that's really interesting. I've I've heard a rumor that uh, some parasites, roundworms, have evolved some kind of diversionary mechanism where they put out enzymes that actually trick the immune system into thinking a virus is is present, so that it it goes after an imaginary virus and ignores the parasite. Is there any truth to that? I'm not too sure that I've heard that one. Uh, I I would say that. The idea of a parasite is that it's in a host. Unfortunately, in some cases, it happens to be a human, and they want to survive. And so they will try to hide away from uh, the immune system if they can, uh, protozoa being a classic example, little tiny one-celled uh, parasite organisms. Uh, but the worms, they, they just... Uh, curl up in a spot and try to uh, just exist. Uh, they are very tough to uh, for the immune system to try to get rid of. Uh, the immune system will do its job sending uh, cells that can um, squirt out various um, substances to irritate the worm, but they're not going to eat the worm, and the worm usually survives that. Uh, so, uh, as far as um, you know, sending out messages to to trick the immune system, I think we see that more with uh, some bacteria uh, more than we would ever see it with a parasite uh, directly. A parasite is one of the focal points where these parasites like to hang out. The ileocecal valve. Uh, that's one area. The, the um, colon itself. The large intestine is another area. Uh, many of the parasites uh, start out in the small intestine, and many of your protozoan one-celled organisms uh, are in the uh, small intestine. Uh, the worms can be in the small intestine uh, and then uh, drop down into the large intestine and then eventually may be expelled from there. What kind of uh, parasites are you typically finding? Well, I'm doing a a bowel movement uh, exam and urine exam. Uh, The urine exam is almost 99% negative, but occasionally I do find 
uh, a parasite in the urinary tract. Uh, there is a uh, parasite um, that can cause a cancer in the bladder. And uh, it's pretty rare for us to see that within the United States. Uh, but uh, as far as the, the uh, stool parasites, I'm looking for protozoa. There's many different kinds. Uh, roundworms, uh, there are uh, four or five different kinds. Uh, the tapeworms, and then what people call flukes, which are uh, more flat worms uh, that are smaller. Uh, and uh, those are generally what I'm looking for. I also look for um, the uh, excess um, yeast in a stool sample as well. Uh, to me, uh, yeast should not be seen hardly at all in a stool sample. But if there's a bunch of yeast coming through, usually that's because the yeast load is so heavy in the uh, intestinal tract that it's just sloughing off as food and stool come through. So I also look for uh, excess yeast. I've heard a rumor that uh, prosequantel is good for the flukes, the flatworms, and uh, ivermectin is superior for the roundworms. Any truth to that? I think it depends on um, what the load is, how much uh, is coming through in the testing. Is it heavy amount of worms? Uh, or is it uh, maybe a very, very light uh, infection? I think also it depends on the individual. Uh, sometimes people are getting uh, all of their treatment through an insurance program, and it depends on uh, what insurance might cover. Um, but generally for the worms, you're going to use uh, albendazole. You can use ivermectin. Uh, you can use sometimes olenia, which is nitazoxazide. Um, those are the ones that generally will catch those. Now, in my practice, uh, I am not licensed to be prescribing anymore. And my uh, treatment of parasites, even when I was in practice, was more holistic. So I, I will tend to go to um, a um, alternative or natural type of treatments for these kinds of conditions. In terms of the yeast, I'm really curious of that. What do you think is happening in the body where people are having this yeast buildup? Is it from like a parasitic fungal infection? Well, I, I, we all have yeast in the colon. There's no getting around that. And yeast have a very good function uh, because they are very adept at uh, decomposing a material that might otherwise not, we might not get rid of. Um, the problem, I think, is that there becomes an imbalance in the microbiology of the gut, and you have um, an overload of unwanted bacteria, and you have, therefore, a displacement of the good guys. The good bacteria often make substances that keep the yeast in check. So I think it starts with dysbiosis of the gut. And then it is uh, increased by nutritional problems where people are taking too many carbohydrates <clears throat> that then the yeast find is a very great source of energy for them. 
and they multiply and multiply. Uh, so I don't think it's um, I don't think the parasite problem creates a yeast problem, but I do see parasites and yeast often together coming through in the testing. Are you familiar with chronic fatigue syndrome? I am. Um, a lot of people suspected uh, fungal overgrowth, yeast, and parasites as a cause of their their illness. Have you looked for a correlation there? I have a lot of patients that uh, circle various conditions uh, on the health history form that I receive when I get a test in. Um, fatigue is a biggie. These people are very fatigued and uh, often have other complicating uh, medical issues to go along with it. Uh, chronic fatigue syndrome, when I was in practice, was more associated with things like um, chronic bacterial infections. Uh, we, we would find Epstein-Barr virus was a probably the number one uh, that came up in the panel of all the different possibilities. And treating Epstein-Barr virus really uh, got these people out of bed and back on their feet. Uh, parasites themselves, I don't find, create too much of the intense fatigue that you see with bacterial infections, viral infections, things like that. So although it's, uh, it's one of the things we find, um, it, I don't think the parasite problem is the biggie in causing uh, those, uh, those fatigue issues. I wonder if you can, uh, or if you've heard of the Dr. Larry Klapow at Stanford story. No, I haven't. Uh, well, he's a, um, like a, an associate professor at Stanford who, interestingly enough, is colorblind, which he says gives him like almost magical powers to discern contrast differences under a microscope. And he felt that he had discovered a new species of roundworm, uh, a nematode, which he, this was back in the 1990s. He provisionally called this Cryptostrongulus pomoni. The, uh, the hidden lungworm. And his theory was that servicemen traveling back from Vietnam had carried this, this worm with them and that the uh, epidemic of chronic fatigue syndrome might be linked to this particular worm. After many years of struggling to get Stanford to have a look at it, the rumor is that he was ultimately validated for a short time and they gave a provisional name of Verastrongulus uh, Klapaui in his honor to this. And then it kind of disappeared again. And the rumor goes on that what he had done is actually rediscover an existing worm. So his discovery kind of got retracted. But his theory was that this was responsible for the chronic fatigue syndrome and the rise in allergies. So I thought that was a really fascinating theory. It is. It's a fascinating theory. And there, I, we don't. We have only uh, discovered a small tip of the uh, total number of types of organisms that we could consider as parasitic or potentially um, disease-causing. Um, that's so true. My um, training and experience has been mainly in GI tract um, parasitology. 
And a, uh, we get a lot of patients with um, various complaints, one of which is irritable bowel syndrome. Now, when I was in practice, irritable bowel syndrome, at least as your traditional doctors will do, is they will run a lot of different tests to exclude inflammatory conditions, cancer, stuff like that. And if they can't come up with anything on the, that kind of testing, then you get a diagnosis of irritable bowel syndrome. But if what, what we find is, is if you take irritable bowel syndrome people and you start looking for bacterial, viral, parasitic, and other causes, I find that parasites are a big cause of irritable bowel syndrome. And one of the biggest parasites in that grouping is something called Blastocystis hominis, which uh, probably was discovered about 100 years ago and has been kind of batted around in research and clinical uh, different areas. They thought it was a uh, fungus, but then they thought it was some kind of a, of a EU bacteria. Then they finally now have classified it as a potential pathogenic uh, protozoa. And we find, I would say this, that about in the course of doing 100 tests on people with various uh, irritable bowel conditions, of about what I find is about 78% of them, at least in my lab, uh, have blastocystis hominis. And um, this is uh, an organism that uh, is kind of difficult to treat, whether you use uh, prescriptive products or natural products. Um, but it also is one that can cause a lot of issues, diarrhea, cramping, uh, sometimes uh, leaky gut, stuff like that. So, yeah, um, the GI tract is quite a harborer of many different kinds of organisms that could be leading to uh, some of the chronic conditions that you see. It's, uh, it's notable that the 1988 Holmes chronic fatigue syndrome definition specifies that blastocystis hominis is a condition which must be ex excluded in order to get a CFS diagnosis. Interesting. Very well, few people do that, though. Yeah. It's, well, unfortunately, if I talk to my colleagues, ordinary docs that take care of patients as they come in, and I say blastocystis hominis, they just look at me like, what? what, what what's that? Uh, we, we don't really have a training on uh, what really is out there uh, underneath the surface of a lot of these conditions. And uh, so, uh, but I'm happy to say this, that um, we have a lot of doctors who, uh, whose patients came to me and I did a test for them, and they took the samples to their doctor and uh, showed them the report. And I think more doctors now are beginning to understand that there are, that we have a big protozoa problem here in this country. We still have occasionally some worms showing up, and that these things can be treated. And it's very satisfying to have somebody who was suffering from various uh, symptoms to suddenly really be happy again. Their, their guts are, are calmer and 
and and they're feeling better. And so I think this is we're beginning to get the message out a little bit. That's awesome. I can appreciate that this is such a complex field that even if you did receive training in medical school, who could remember all this stuff? It's crazy. Well, it's true. Um, But, you know, I have books and I have uh, color atlases of parasites, things of that nature. And from time to time, I'm looking at a sample. I see something and it sure looks suspicious, but I'm not sure. And you can go and research it out and find, okay, this is what it looks like. Uh, it, it, that That's in my field. Uh, the doctors that I often uh, get calls from is uh, that I've done a, a test on their patient. I found certain things and they call me up and say, what do I do about it? Um, and And so there's an opportunity to kind of talk a little bit about treatment options. Um, no, we're we're just not voiced very well in um, the in the microbiology world of uh, diseases uh, in medical school, and even as we get uh, out in practice, we think that we can solve everything with a prescription for an antibiotic, and there are a lot of antibiotics prescribed uh, for what we think might be a microbiology problem. That's interesting. Um, you know, my husband is Indian from India, and he told me growing up that his mom would deworm them yearly. And they have this protocol where they take, uh, castor oil, like loads of it. And then they eat russum, you know, I'm not providing any medical advice here to anyone listening, but it's just that it's interesting that other cultures are very well versed in this. Like they know that you have to deworm yourself every so often. And even veterinarians, don't they have a much more sensitive testing methodology to test for worms and like horses and dogs and everything? Right. They, they basically, uh, they know that these animals pick up these, uh, organisms they pick them up from the same places we visit. I mean, let's face it, you know, they, the, the animals drink water from the ground. They, they, uh, they're walking and lying uh, on ground and ground surfaces. And uh, the very same ground is what we walk on, lie on, swim in. We, you know, we, we're, we're exposed. And uh, yes, they have all the testing that they can do just like um, in good parasite labs, you can do that testing on the humans as well. Sure. Is it then um, true that if you're sharing a household with, with pets that you would be more susceptible to, to getting um, like a parasitic infection? I, I think the, the general answer would be yes, it's possible. Uh, it depends on the pet. Some pets are totally indoors. Some are, uh, outdoor and indoor. And then you have uh, the larger animals that people keep, you know, the horses and the uh, the cow and the pig. And there are uh, certainly uh, parasites associated with those animals. And then people go out and hunt and they uh, kill bear and they kill buffalo and they kill this and that. These animals often have of some of the parasites that can infect humans. So, um, yeah, we, the animal population is a big source of uh, exposure, potentially, to humans. How much of a problem is toxoplasmosis 
Well, it's there. It's a problem. Um, we, uh, in family medicine, as we would take care of our pregnant ladies, uh, we would want very much for them to, uh, of, if they, especially if they had cats and litter boxes, uh, not to uh, be involved in cleaning those uh, litter boxes at all, because uh, their exposure would be increased. Uh, from the potential that uh, the cats would be carrying that particular organism. Um, occasionally, uh, be, this is out of the area where I look for parasites, but um, I have occasionally, when I was in practice, had a patient that was was talking about something moving around in their eye. And I would send them to the uh, ophthalmologist, and they, they they would run some tests and look at things. And occasionally, toxoplasmosis was involved in an eye infection. Um, so it's out there, and uh, screening for that is usually now with a blood test to see if you've been exposed. It doesn't necessarily tell you that you have it right then, but at least people that are negative on the blood test are not going to really be worrying about some kind of a toxoplasma uh, infection. Is toxoplasmosis mainly uh, caught from cats, or is well, that literature not really accurate to what what we're seeing? I, I know by cats because of basically the training that we received, but I'm sure that there are other organisms, uh, uh, other uh, animals, maybe even some birds and things that can carry it. Uh, that would be something I would look up to uh, give you a better answer. And how about mycoplasma infections? Oh, they're they're common. Uh, they're definitely common. Um, we saw that in uh, uh, in medical practice, uh, and and we would uh, be looking for those, and especially in patients that were having uh, various uh, lung infections, uh, infections of the respiratory tract in general. We find that. Um, I didn't have much uh, way of treating that except for an antibiotic, but occasionally we would uh, send somebody to an infectious disease who uh, would do the more specialized testing, and they would come up with a mycoplasma infection uh, for, for a particular patient. So I've heard a rumor that uh, mycoplasma is an intracellular infection, which act activates antiviral defenses. So it actually tricks researchers into looking for a virus when it's actually a cell wall deficient bacteria. Could very well be. I wouldn't have any uh, knowledge of that, but it sounds plausible. I was a patient of the uh, premier chronic fatigue syndrome specialist, the guy who essentially called the CDC and started this syndrome, Dr. Daniel Peterson. And he became so totally involved in viral infections that that was his specialty, and that was all he treated, Epstein-Barr virus and human herpes virus 6. Mm -hmm. And if anybody felt that they had another problem like Lyme disease or a parasitic infection, he would send them somewhere else. And so his patients generally went down to Carson City to see Dr. Frank Schallenberger, who is like the local parasite guy. And I kept looking at these patients, seeing if they got any 
fantastic results. If there was the underlying cause for their Epstein-Barr virus reactivation, and somehow that just didn't really seem to lead anywhere. And I've always wondered about that. Yeah. Uh, well, again, the parasites, um, you know, we, we can have parasites have absolutely no symptoms at all. And uh, since most of the people that send a test kit to me to look at uh, are symptomatic, I often find parasites. But occasionally, uh, I'll have someone who just wants to be sure they don't have a parasite. And many times, uh, there's a maybe a single type of protozoa or something in their system. They don't have any symptoms. So you know, I think it's possible to not have a problem just because you have a, a small load of a parasite in your system. Um, and um, that we do see that from time to time. So would it be worthwhile to just go ahead and do this annual deworming? I don't see why not. Um, you know, what I find here in the United States is not very many people have worms, but Many people have protozoa. So let me talk a little bit about the protozoa family. Uh, they are one-celled organisms. They cannot be seen with the naked eye at all. And when you see them in um, biopsies of the gut, when the pathologist sees them in gut tissue, uh, they usually line up on the surface of a cell. And they block some of the uh, ability of that cell to get its nutrients and to expel its wastes. So from that standpoint, uh, parasites, that, uh, protozoan parasites that are considered uh, harmless, but if there's a lot of them, they can kind of act as a, a barrier and create a little bit of malabsorption, especially we're talking now about the uh, intestines, uh, the upper intestinal tract, which absorbs your food and everything. So um, we see that these one-celled organisms can cause malabsorption. We also know that like blastocystis and some others, they can eat your good bacteria. So again, there's uh, problems with just their presence in the inside lining of the gut. Uh, Blastocystis has been found to be inside and between cells, and they've also found it in uh, joint fluid, causing uh, an arthritic uh, inflammation. Uh, so these one-celled organisms uh, are more plentiful than the worms are. And then from that point, uh, we try to treat, uh, get rid of the uh, load of protozoan parasites. Uh, by whatever means is uh, available for them, for that per person. And then occasionally I get a, a photograph of a worm past when we've treated only for protozoans. So there are people that have worms, and there's no um, real good way to know that they had a worm except that they passed one. And uh, I know there's tests out there now for DNA, and the DNA tests are great if uh, you have one now, but a DNA test for parasites is sometimes picking up s stuff that you uh, may have had a long time ago as well. So um, I get, I get uh, a lot of protozoans, 
when I'm doing my exams, and occasionally uh, we find uh, evidence of a worm, a, a larvae, or a, an egg, a worm egg. And once in a rare while, when you're fishing through the stool, we fish through every stool sample, we'll pull out a worm out of the stool. So, um, yeah, it's, it's just an amazing uh, detective work that parasite exams are. Wasn't it Dr. Stephen Fry who felt that he had found a novel protozoan in conjunction with chronic fatigue syndrome? I'm not sure what, uh, what he found. Yeah, there was a Fry Labs, and they were talking about it was all the rage for, for a short time. The, this one specific bacteria looked like a real emergent uh, agent, a culprit for chronic fatigue syndrome. And then that kind of faded away. Oh, okay. You I, have, to, have to look that up. Yeah, that's, that's something else to look up. We'd like to take a moment to thank our sponsors. Home Cleanse, formerly known as All American Restoration, is a company that specializes in improving indoor air quality through proper mold remediation, offering services nationwide. You can visit them at homecleanse.com to learn more. The Mold Guy performs mold sampling and testing for homeowners, renters, and businesses. Please visit themoldguyinc.com to learn more. Black Diamond Services provides solutions to the unforeseen challenges that can affect homes and families with no out-of-pocket costs. Services include temporary housing relocation and mold test referrals for homeowners. Visit blackdiamondservices.com to learn more. Thank you again for your sponsorships. It is integral to our ability to serve our community and to improve the quality of life for all. What are some... um, common, like other common diseases associated with these protozoa or worm infections that you're seeing? Well, um, we see uh, right now in this country, we've had a lot of flooding and floods are, uh, they bring all of your uh, raw water organisms onto land surfaces. And in some cases, right around your ankles, your waists, because you're wading through all this water, it's in your homes where it's uh, flooded a home. And so we're finding a lot of people with Giardia and Cryptosporidium. And there was a time, um, probably about three years ago, that I was getting positive Crypto and Giardia on almost every West Coast specimen because of all the flooding they were doing. And the floods they they also bring what's on land surfaces into the reservoirs and so uh, we were we were finding these uh, parasites and we found that you know cryptosporidium and giardia are really not killed well at all by um the uh, the various uh, cleaning agents that they try to to put in you know your um blocking on the uh, on what it is but um, at any rate, uh, what comes through your tap will often have uh, crypto and giardia in some locations, and uh, therefore people are exposed. So we were finding a lot of crypto and giardia. These organisms, the giardia mainly causes a kind of a malabsorption, but it also causes a really um, angry gut, and they have a lot of diarrhea problems, mushy, foul smelling bowel movements. 
cryptosporidium does cause diarrhea and sometimes 10, 15, 20 bowel movements a day. Uh, but this organism likes to stay up high in the gut. It's, it's, uh, it likes the uh, area where the bile comes into the small intestine from the gallbladder. And so that organism likes to creep up into the bile duct. And interestingly, the cells that line the bile duct make specialized chemicals that are very good at getting rid of cryptosporidium. So we are seeing a lot of crypto and we are seeing a lot of giardia, especially in areas that are being inundated by a lot of heavy rain and floods. I have seen in some of the parasite groups, because there's a lot of them on Facebook and I join them and I like to see what people talk about. And I heard that giardia is pretty tough to treat. It's very resistant. Well, uh, the um, common... uh, Treatment is flagyl, which is uh, metronidazole, and probably about 70% uh, <laughs> treatment. I mean, it's it's going to get rid of uh, Giardia generally. Sometimes you have to use uh, other uh, antibiotics. But my, my concern has always been this, that sometimes we don't use high enough a dose of an antibiotic right off the bat, or we don't use it long enough. And for that reason, what I often find with my people is if they take uh, an antibiotic like uh, like Flagyl and they take it for seven days, maybe 10 days, I like to come back in with some natural uh, products that will maybe get the stragglers. Uh, and that's been the problem with parasite treatment in my uh, view is that the uh, we, we get rid of the bulk of the parasite problem with a prescription, but then there are stragglers that can kind of set up and maybe start another infection weeks to months later. And I've seen that happen. And I sometimes get that question from patients that uh, had a positive parasite test somewhere else, got an antibiotic treatment, and then two or three months later, they're back with it again. And they say, what's going on and what can I do? And it's basically you want to treat it for a longer period of time. Antibiotics are not a great long-term treatment option, but you can tag on to an antibiotic after it's ended with um, maybe some essential oils or some oregano or some silver or something that will get the stragglers. And I do a three-month program when I treat patients uh, with a natural program. You've got to just be on top of it and get all of the, um, well, in your case, where you do a lot of um, microbiology, mycology, the spores, you know, you've got to get rid of the spores. You've got to get rid of the eggs. You've got to get rid of the uh, protozoa that didn't quite get killed and keep them from starting another colony. Awesome. So then I know that you're not prescribing pharmaceuticals, but are you able to then at least advise if someone would like to do a conjunctive therapy of pharmaceutical and herbal? Oh, yes. Um, when When I do a parasite test and let's say I have some parasites I found and I write up a report, the report will include a link to a booklet that I have written. This one is um, 
Amazing World of Parasites, How to Treat Them, How to Get Rid of Them. And in there, I have all of the antibiotics that work on the various parasites. Uh, so I, I want them to have that. And a lot of patients want to go and get that prescription from their doctor and get try to get rid of it that way. And I think that's a great way to start. Uh, but then I also have patients who have been the antibiotic route or for whatever reason don't want to take one. And then we need to do um, various uh, natural products. And I have a lot of lists of those that might be helpful. So either or works then. It's not I I'm always referring to what I'm seeing trend-wise. And it seems like the major first the major problem is no one knows what to do. They don't know what dosage, they don't know what drug, you know, right. they don't know where to go. And so it's good right. that you offer that pathway. But what I'm seeing trend-wise in these groups is yeah, like people don't know what to do, what to take, where to go. And then some people are saying that um herbals are not enough and they need like pharmaceuticals. And so how true is that? Are you finding these? protozoas or these worms or parasitic infections, are they becoming more resistant to natural things to that you would have to resort to something more chemical-based? Well, I that's a great question. I wish I could answer it in a general way. I have to say that I work with each person on a very specific way, and we have to understand what have they tried in the past? What are we trying to do right now? What, what kind of resources do they want to reach for in treating? And um, I think that uh, there are failures in uh, the antibiotics that they use and the various antiparasitics, partially because uh, we don't understand, and I say we meaning the general doc population, we don't understand how long we ought to use it and what is the best dosing and interval to give it. And, And so there are some failures just from not knowing that kind of information. Then in the natural realm, uh, I think that it's a little less likely to have as many, we have failures, but it isn't as likely when you use the kinds of things that hit the parasites in multiple different ways all at once. And that's one of the reasons why I use uh, a, a blend of essential oils because essential oils have multiple chemicals in each oil. And then you multiply that times the different uh, oils in one blend. And these parasites are not going to be able to create a resistance uh, to that type of treatment. And But we carry it out along, uh, for three months uh, to get all the stragglers. So I think if you use natural in low dose, over a longer period of time, you can get the end point that you want, which is you get rid of uh, the parasite problem that, that you've found. Um, you can also sometimes do both. You can be on an antibiotic and a very low dose of the natural as well. And the two are working together uh, against the parasite problem. They don't interfere with each other. They kind of uh, synergize to to the treatment, if you will. And uh, but I have a lot of patients that want to try one and then try the other. And uh, in other words, they might do the antibiotic for the ten days, then they'll come in on board and do a three month of the natural pro program. 
and try to get it cleaned out that way. So there are a lot of options there. I do like one thing, though, the moon cycle. If you, I'll bet if you talk to the, your Indian people, that they will tell you that parasites are very much attuned to the cycle of the moon. And they are very active at the full moon. And they are. I get a lot of patients to say their main problems come around the full moon. So I treat according to the moon cycle. When I do natural products, I start them when the moon is half full. I carry it through the full moon, and then I carry it past that to maybe when the moon is half uh, waning. So during that uh, interval, the parasites are more likely to take the low doses of what you're trying to give them and more likely to be killed by them. And uh, I think this is very helpful because we don't have to use high doses for a complete long period of time. We use low doses over a shorter period of time, but we're timing it with the uh, way the parasites respond to the moon. And I get questions, well, why do they respond to the moon? Well, if you look at parasites, especially the protozoa, they're 99% water. And water expands. Your tides rise. Uh, they get irritable. If I, I assume if there's an emotion attached to a parasite, I'm giving it one. If they get irritable, they expand. They're more likely to pull in the stuff that you're trying to give them to get rid of them. So that's why what I call my moon cycle treatments. We do uh, 20 days on and 10 days off for three cycles, three moon cycles. Well, thank you. You just answered my most burning question because that was the <laughs> major complaint is about parasites dancing to the light of the full moon. Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to ask another weird question, but I kind of I want to debunk this because I've heard some other experts in our realm talk about it. Um, and you're the ultimate expert. So let's ask you, do parasites have a favorite season? Like, are they hatching in fall, like in August or? They hatch when they have the best environment for uh, for that. Um, so, no, they I don't see that as happening. I would say that um, in areas, not in our country, but overseas, where a lot of the parasites are dependent upon, upon animal, fish, uh, and other uh, organisms as their host, um, it depends on the, the season for those hosts to... Um, be more available and be in a position to ha harbor the parasites. And then, of course, uh, depending on what humans do with those hosts, uh, they might eat the bat or eat this or eat whatever and then get infected. So once it's in the human body, they are looking for an ideal environment. And when they have the ideal, ideal environment and they grow to maturity, they will reproduce. They will start making eggs or they will make more of themselves, whatever, however they're going to reproduce. Fantastic. Another um, idea that I'd like to debunk with you is that parasites like to eat metals. 
And that if you are heavily polluted with metals, then you would have a higher parasitic load. Is that true or not? I've heard it. I've never seen any good uh, data to support it. Um, I would say this, you know, when we think of metal, um, we think of heavy metals, of course, I think. Um, But unfortunately, uh, zinc is a metal. And zinc is one of the best things that your immune system can have on hand to help it fight any kind of infection. So um, I think that that taking extra zinc, uh, whatever you're trying to kill or get rid of, is is important. Um, I know that uh, some people don't want to take a colloidal silver uh, because they say, well, that's a heavy metal. Yeah, it's a heavy metal. And uh, eventually, uh, your body will get rid of it to some extent. Uh, But most of the time, uh, you're going to kill the organism. They're not going to live on taking silver into their system. So zinc and colloidal silver would be good preventative measures for people to take in order to prevent? I I don't like colloidal silver for preventative. I think it's an antibiotic, a very good, high-powered, natural antibiotic. And like any other, you don't want to keep exploding bombs when all you need is a little BB gun. So, um, no, I see, save that for bona fide infections. But for, you know, what, what can we do to keep parasites uh, uh, at bay, if you will, um, you can take uh, some various essential oils, little tiny dabs by mouth. Uh, some people do oregano. I find that to be very caustic uh, to the tongue and mucous membranes, unless you put it in a capsule. Um, we take something called ImmuGuard, which is something we make up um, that uh, has about seven or eight or nine essential oils in it. It's a little dab on the tongue. Uh, I've had people going to overseas to various places, and they take a bottle with them to try to, you know, keep the bacteria load and the parasite load from being a problem. Uh, Iodine is another anti-parasitic, but you have to be careful because you don't want to overload the thyroid. Uh, So uh, sometimes small amounts of iodine. Some people have taken, uh, trying to think of the name of it um, I can't think of it right now but there are there are products out there that supposedly will kind of keep the parasites at bay um, is it lugols lugols iodine you know you can take oh. lugols uh, oh. iosol i o s o l is another uh, iodine that's very good um, it's in drops um, um, uh, Grapefruit seed extract is what I was thinking of. Um, if you can get real grapefruit seed extract and not the stuff that's been uh, doctored and adulterated, uh, that's been used overseas when people go overseas to uh, not get parasites when they're in uh, rural rural overseas areas. Yeah. Would grapefruit juice work? the same as grapefruit seed oh okay two different components okay what about biofilm are parasites protected by biofilms they can be uh the body does biofilm uh as a defense mechanism 
it basically wants to wrap a, a, a pathogen in something that uh, the immune system doesn't have to keep worrying about. Um, I've had, uh, I actually had a photograph sent to me of a patient that passed a worm completely encapsulated in a, bar in a biofilm. It was really something to see. Um, but the oils that I use, uh, essential oils are basically uh, biofilm disruptors. So uh, when we do our natural treatment over the three months, um, I'm not worried about them not getting the biofilm uh, problem. Now they'll take the biofilm down and then get the parasites that might be trapped in the biofilm. That's interesting that you describe it as the, the body's like protective response, because what seems to be talked about is that it's the the offending organism's protective response. Like that organism is building its own shield, not necessarily it's the body trying to protect, you know, from these organisms. So it's interesting that you say it's it's opposite. Well, I think you can say it's a combination of things, but at, at the same time, um, a lot of these biofilms are mucus-laden as well. And uh, of course, the body makes this glycoprotein mucus uh, for purposes of encapsulating stuff that the body doesn't want to deal with. Then you dehydrate that, and you can get a more crystalline type of film. So I really kind of think it's a combination of things, uh, but that the body ultimately is uh, trying to uh, encapsulate a problem so it doesn't have to deal with it. So it, it allows that to happen. But it also benefits from it happening, if you, if you kind of see my gist there. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much. I have one last question, and then we won't take any more of your time. I know we're beyond the hour, but I feel like okay. I want to ask you so many questions. Like, we have yeah. you here. Um, so what, just from your from your inspection point of view and your investigative skills and looking into parasites, like, what percentage of the population you think are carrying parasites, worms, protozoa? Well, I would say a high high percentage, um, and that's uh, partly my bias because I see people that are a worried about parasites or have them, or uh, have symptoms that are very much indicative of a possible parasite problem. But in the uh, when we were doing a surveillance over in Vietnam, when I was uh, you know, doing the parasite lab over there. Uh, after I enlisted and was trained as a medical technologist, uh, we did uh, surveillance of GIs coming into the country to fight to see what was their parasite load. He, these are people that uh, basically are from the States and uh, really have not been fighting in some other locale. And they, many of them had parasites. And which was surprising to me at that time. I just had a high school degree and uh, all the training of a medical technologist. And I was thinking, wow, you know, they we have a lot of people with parasites, mainly protozoan, I might say, not worms. And then when the GIs would come in from the field, they were sick, uh, whatever, uh, they would run stool tests on GIs and 
they had the same parasites that the Vietnamese population had in many cases. So um, I think at least in this country, for an ordinary person who has no symptoms, parasite load is there, but very low. Um, there may be a few of what the CDC calls benign parasites. And uh, I, I think that's fine. But I also have a bone to pick with CDC that if you have a lot of benign parasites, you can have an irritation, you can have symptoms, and then you can sometimes have uh, a mix of benign and pathogenic. And if you only see the benign, you don't treat them, and then they have more problems. So uh, it's there. There are, there are parasites there. Oh, I did think of one more question. Yeah. Do you see an inexplicable drop in body temperature in association with parasites of about one to two degrees? I haven't looked at it. Oh. I wish I could tell you an answer. I've not looked at that. Um, no, the, as far as temperature and parasites are concerned, I am drawn more to um, the malarial parasite where the body temperature goes way up uh, as an attempt to fight it. And uh, that's actually a clue uh, to the fact that a person might have malarial type of parasite. Uh, but other than that, I'm not sure about the body lowering uh, of of the temperature. Very interesting. And then, all right, I do have one more question. I swear, I promise you. Okay, <laughs> you works. okay cause I know I, we want to be very respectful of your schedule. I know you're very busy as well. Um, are parasites transferred from mother to baby? The answer is yes, but I can't give you the uh, the possibility of that. Oh. Um, I would have to do the research to refresh where that came from, but uh, it is potentially possible. Um, and uh, it's probably more the worm family than it is the protozoan family because uh, worms can burrow. Uh, but, um, you know, the transmission of person to person is a problem. Uh, if a person has, uh, let's say, we get a lot of people with uh, Giardia and Cryptosporidium. These, these are diarrhea-producing organisms. They can be found for a very short period of time on the skin around the anal opening. Um, sometimes can be for short periods of time found on the hands after wiping. Um, you know, that's why you got to wash your hands after you have a bowel movement or, or urinate. And the reason is that these organisms are potentially transmissible. Who are you going to transmit it to? Probably not someone else. We often touch our mouth or whatever, and we get it right back in again. Um, but, uh, you know, if you have good hygiene among family members, you very rarely have a transmission problem. But if you don't have good hygiene, or maybe it's forgetful at times, you may have a transmission from one person to one of the one or two of the other family members. And I've done whole families where a person, they all want to be tested at the same time. And I'll find the one that has all the symptoms 
as the main parasite problem, and maybe one other or two others have a very low grade of the same parasite, and then others that don't have any. So again, transmission is a problem. Um, they did a study in Los Angeles one time, public health study, where they went into restaurants, got the workers, and took scrapings from under their fingernails and found that uh, there were um, bowel movement under fingernails, uh, fecal material. So can you tra transmit from fecal material under a fingernail? Unfortunately, yes. So uh, hygiene is the best prevention for parasites. That, that and you and can, don't, um, don't forget the ice machines. They found in restaurants yes. that the uh, fecal bacteria was always winding up in the uh, ice machines. Yeah, <laughs> ice machines. And ice machines are another source of protozoa, especially Giardia and Cryptosporidium, because you can't kill them uh, with um, the various chemicals that the public health systems use to uh, kill the germs in our water supply that, that we use as tap water. And some of these uh, ice-making uh, companies are not local in your in the city. They may be out in rural areas, and they are using water, perhaps from areas that are not as um, where where the water is too raw. I would say uh, that that's another potential possibility. Um, yeah, it, there's a lot of there's a lot out there that puts the United States population at some risk, and the doctors themselves, they don't see that. They don't think about that. And I warned the doctors, like in Texas, they had all these rains came through a while back and flooded South Texas big time. And I had some doctors down there that send me parasite uh, testing from the, uh, on their patients. And I let them know, hey, with all this flooding going on, be aware that the incidence of um, Cryptosporidium, Giardia, and other parasites will go up uh, because of their ex potential exposure to these things with the flooding, uh, just to make them more aware. So awareness is a, where we have some things that we have to work on in terms of parasites. So you're saying order the beer instead of the water at a restaurant? Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Mental <Yeah>. note. <laughs> now, um, so we're we're into mold and mold illness and how environments can cause illness. I don't know if you're tracking this in your questionnaires, but are you seeing an association between environmental uh, related diseases and positive parasite tests? Uh, I don't know that I'm tracking it in terms of a questionnaire. Um, but I do uh, get uh, information by email from patients who ask questions about where they are and what's going on in their environment. And then would that make them more susceptible to parasites? And most of the time it has to do with um, problems with land where they have um, their their resurfacing areas where there's mud and other uh, potential um, er areas where there's been a lot of animal activity. And I get questions about, uh, can I 
you know, play in the water of a particular lake or river? Uh, how worried should I be about being exposed and things of that nature? So environment is a biggie. And uh, I think, you know, we have to think about it. Another example is uh, when I, I have a list in this little booklet that people download uh, about how to take care of these parasites, I say, you know, if you're a fish, if you're a fisherman, you're exposed. Why are you exposed? You're handling the line, which is wet. Uh, you're pulling up a fish and he's flapping around. Uh, you're getting the water on skin. Um, you know, you've got to be thinking about that. Another uh, environmental situation is where is your food coming from? An example is about four or five years ago, I was seeing a particular parasite uh, that causes diarrhea. And uh, it's, uh, uh, I can't think of the name right off the hand, but it was one that I was seeing a lot of. And this was unusual. I don't see this hardly ever at all. And the CDC also was picking this up in questions from labs. And it turned out that it was coming off of leafy produce that was being grown in uh, Central America next to a huge farm that had cattle grazing. And the water and rain would wash that fecal material into the farmland, and it was on the plants. So I, I tell people, please, we don't know where your produce is coming from. It's not coming from just the grocery store, folks. It's coming from who knows where, and wash it, uh, rinse it. Uh, if you're really uh, worried about it, uh, put some uh, vinegar in water and let your produce stand in that for a little you know, 10, 15 minutes, then rinse it off and put it up. Uh, because again, we are being potentially exposed due to the environment in which the food is being grown, stored, transported. Um, so that's another example of where environment and potential parasite exposure kind of connect. Yeah, we recently, well, not recently, we I think a year ago, we had a conversation with an EPA microbiologist, and he sounded the alarm on the sewage sludge that we are using from, I guess, our own sewage. And they are processing that, and they are putting it on every piece of public land there is across America. And he said it's an improper way of processing so that pathogens and everything else is still existing in this sewage sludge and uh he was later fired but he then went back and sued and to which the judge said he was wrongfully terminated so i don't know if you heard that one i feel like you might be interested in listening to that episode just for your own knowledge but we were like freaked out by that and then that's when and he told us even before the whole the whole covid vaccine thing where he said, watch, you're going to start seeing COVID coming up in sewage. And all of a sudden, months later, we started seeing these articles about COVID being found in our sewage. And right. so we think like, why are we using this and then spraying it everywhere? <laughs> it's like, it's exactly. a little maniacal. Yeah, uh, it, it doesn't make sense to have fecal material placed anywhere other than in the sewer and leave it to be processed by the people that uh, do a good safe processing of that kind of waste. Um, 
because it's not uh, it's it's a danger. It is definitely a danger. Yeah. Yeah. All right, Dr. D'Angelo. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. If anyone wanted to order a test or maybe consult with you, how would they go ahead and do that? Where can they find you? Probably the best way would be to go online and uh, go to uh, Para Wellness Research, P-A-R-A-W-E-L-L-N-E-S-S research.com and uh, read the homepage and look at uh, what is involved. And uh, if they so wish to, they can order it. I don't require a doctor's ordering. And I always work with the patient and secondary with the practitioner or doctor. But my contract is always with the person wanting to be tested. Fantastic. Well, thank you for your work. And we hope that your work will survive beyond you and will forever be around because like you said, (laughs) until we're able to, you know, come up with better testing methods, I feel like your method right now is probably the strongest. What we have out there is you're really going under the microscope to to examine what's Uh, going on. So thank you. Well, it's been a great opportunity and I've actually learned a lot to uh, talking with you and and, and the uh, gentleman. Uh, so it's uh, it's been good. So thank you. <laughs> awesome. Yeah. Eric is a really cool guy. He's got a lot of random knowledge. So if you two yeah. ever want to connect, I'll connect you too. You guys can chat it up. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> All right. Well, everyone, thank you so much for listening and we'll see you next time. Bye.